Woohoo! Yes, I'm heading to the beach for just a couple of weeks, but I, I wouldn't want to leave you hanging. So welcome to this three-episode ESG takeover of the Give First podcast. You know, here at Techstars, we believe Give First and ESG go hand in hand because ESG is directly related to how companies impact the world. What the heck is ESG? Well, if you don't know, it's an acronym for Environment, Social, and Corporate Governance. It stands for the three main standards by which a company could be measured to determine its impact on the world. And being proactive about ESG risks and opportunities helps founders make their companies more resilient and create longer-term value in any type of economic conditions. So in this three-episode series focused on ESG, Dr. Mary Jane Fox, who helps lead ESG here at Techstars, will interview founders and industry experts to uncover actionable ESG practices for founders like you to apply to their early stage companies. So stay tuned. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? In this second of three ESG Takeover episodes, Mary Jane interviews Liz Georgie. She's the founder and CEO of Suna, a Techstars portfolio company, and Peter Dunbar of the UN Principles of Responsible Investment. This episode is really focused on how to engage with investors about ESG. You'll learn about the candor clause, which, as Liz says, quote, any founder at any stage raising any amount can use, unquote. And you'll learn about what it means when an investor is a UNPRI signatory, like Techstars is. Let's jump in with Dr. Fox and these amazing guests. Liz, before we jump into the ESG practice of using a candor clause, tell us about what Suna does. Suna is a virtual photo shoot platform. And what that means is that we help brands plan their photo shoots online, have their photo shoots online, and then get their assets delivered to market and sell their products. There's not a single thing that we buy on the internet that doesn't have a photo or a video attached to those particular transactions. And so we really see ourselves as the visual layer of e-commerce, helping e-commerce stores and e-commerce sellers not only promote their products, but actually sell their products and continue to grow their businesses using our technology. Thank you. Thanks for that context, because all the companies that are listening to this then can see themselves in the idea of what is a candor clause. Tell us more about what is the candor clause. Well, I didn't actually hear about the candor clause until my co-founder and I invented the candor clause. So the candor clause was a decision that Haley and I really came to together as co-founders when we were raising our seed round. In 2019, we had graduated from the Techstars Boulder program, and we were doing what so many founders do. We were out raising venture capital to really continue to grow our business and to expand our technology. And in many of the conversations we were having with investors, we were noticing a couple things. 
first female founders do have a different fundraising experience. Many of us have the unfortunate experience of being asked questions that kind of go outside the bounds of the business transaction and oftentimes veer into the personal side of the transaction. But second to that, there is this process of due diligence that happens with any investor business relationship. And that due diligence process surfaces so much about the founders. It surfaces our past employment. It surfaces our past businesses. It surfaces relationships that we might have. And I really asked my co-founder this question of, you know, if we wanted to do quote unquote due diligence on our investors, how would we even go about doing that? And the truth is, is that the power dynamics are such that that's quite difficult. So Haley and I looked at each other and we said, well, What if we just had a series of questions, a series of things that we wanted to know about from our investors, and we really asked them to be quote unquote candid with us? Could they actually be candid about the things that were potentially the skeletons hidden in their closet, just to make sure that there wasn't something there that we didn't need to know about? And so that's what really gave the candor clause its name is a legal disclosure that allows for companies, especially startups, to include it in their guarantees and warranties in their financial transactions with investors. And essentially what it does is it requires the investor to make a guarantee that they've disclosed any issues with sexual harassment, racial discrimination, any of the protected classes that you would see, any kind of discriminatory issues that you would see around those protected classes. And if they've had an issue, they're required to disclose it. Failure to disclose then allows us as founders to, of course, at a later date, if we were to find out that there was a failure to disclose or we were to find out that they did not, in fact, tell us really what did happen, It allows us to buy that investor out at the price that they paid during the initial financing. And that's really important because that closes this essential loophole that exists in these transactions. When you talk to founders, especially female founders, but often black and brown founders or just otherwise overlooked founders, and they tell you some of their horror stories about interacting with investors, one of the things you hear time and time again is, yeah, I finally got that person out of my business, but they got the markup of three additional rounds of financing, right? And You just don't want those investors who were not good actors, who weren't candid, who didn't really enter into that relationship with full transparency to really benefit and to make money off the backs of founders who are really trying to put a message out there in the world that we want to have more honest and candid transactions with our investors. I was going to ask you, what have you seen as the potential benefits, which you've kind of just laid out, but maybe if there are more, and maybe the consequences of your company using the candor clause. One of the consequences of using the candor clause is that you may lose investors and you may lose them because their legal counsel will look at the candor clause and say that it's not in line with their recommendations or they may feel unwilling to be transparent about the issues that they've had at their organization. And what I would really say to people is when you actually get that red flag of someone saying, I don't think I can invest in your company because I'm not willing to be candid about these issues, It's actually the intent of the candor clause. It's the actual benefit that you receive. You're able to, as a founder, understand the kind of person that you're getting into business with, understand the type of fund that you're getting into business with. And I always really look at these issues as a matter of what are our values. Building a business, we all ask, what are our core values? What are the core values of the business? 
Well, what are the values that you share with those investors, those people who will sit on your board? And the benefit of meeting a fund that's willing to have these conversations, that's willing to maybe share something that isn't that wonderful about their fund. One of the things that's really interesting about the candor clause is it doesn't exclude someone who's had an issue with discrimination or harassment from investing. It simply requires that disclosure. And so then you as a founder get to ask questions. You get to say, hey, how did you resolve this? What are policies or procedures that you've put into place that have maybe prevented this from happening in the future? That kind of conversation is unparalleled in terms of building a better relationship with that investor and just really understanding who you're going into business with in the long run. Mm, Thank you. I'm curious if you could walk us through what it looks like in practice to apply the clause, like give us a glimpse into the how. First thing you're going to do is go to candorclause.org. That's C-A-N-D-O-R-C-L-A-U-S-E.org to download the clause. It's an open source piece of legal language that you can then share with your lawyers. So you want to send it to your lawyers as you're thinking about the financing, as you're getting close to getting into practice of the final transaction terms. Then you're also going to want to have a conversation with your investors. And the way that I've teed this up that's been really successful for me is I've had a conversation ahead of sending that legal language to those investors where I've said, I want to spend 10 minutes sort of giving you a heads up about something I'd like to include in our legal disclosures and why it's important to me and really talk through how I see this as being an important part of us building our relationship. In that conversation, you can talk about your value for candor, your value for equity. Why thinking about the justice orientation of our business and our relationship is important to you and why it doesn't exclude them from investing, but why it actually makes the relationship more inclusive of all the information that everyone needs to know. Getting that investor on board is so important because whatever the investor tells legal counsel to do, legal counsel is going to do. So you want to get them on board with that. And then once they're on board with it, legal counsel usually signs off, figures out how to work together on that. And then the actual semantics of it is that you'll actually oftentimes then get, if there is an issue with the fund, you'll get some kind of disclosure of what has occurred. You can have a meeting, have a conversation. If there is no issue, then the investor signs off and they're making a a guarantee to you as the founder of the fact that they haven't had these issues. So you really do have that opportunity in this practice to have many conversations. You get to have a chance to walk through how those conversations create value in the relationship. And you get that disclosure, which helps you learn exactly what might have happened and how it's been resolved at that particular fund. Once it's been signed, Another thing you can do and something I've asked our investors to do is to make it part of the standard language in their term sheets. So if you look at Matchstick Ventures, which is a seed fund, uh, they are using the candor clause in all of their transactions as a way to show their support, not only for what we're doing, but for all their founders and really saying, listen, this is one relationship that's been really successful. Let's model this in futures. And so you can ask that of your investors if you feel passionately about it. Wow. Thank you for sharing that little detail at the end there. That sounds so important in addition to what you said. Suna has done exceptionally well with fundraising. You have not seen negative consequences overall, including the candor clause. Yeah, I mean, I've raised $51 million in two years and the candor clause has been included in all those transactions. So it hasn't stopped me, that's for sure. 
Yeah, that's really good for people to know. And I'm curious if you have any advice that we haven't touched on related to early stage startups wanting to implement it. Is there any other like last minute or closing pieces of advice you have for those founders considering this? At the end of the day, a fundraising process is an investor-founder matching process. And it's really all about trying to find both an advocate and the capital, but also somebody who you believe stands for the things that your business also stands for. And I believe the Candor Clause is this really interesting lens through which you get to look at these relationships. You're going to do a bunch of pitch presentations. You're going to do a bunch of Q&A meetings about what your company does. You're going to provide customer references. You're going to provide huge volumes of data. But one of the things you can also provide is a look and a glimpse into the kind of business you're trying to build on a cultural level. I don't think enough founders really think about this. And let me emphasize why I think this is so important. So many founders are going to go through the motions of fundraising. They're going to go through the motions of here's my deck, here's my data room, here's my FAQs. And so few are going to add on this step of saying, and by the way, this is going to be a seven to 10 year relationship if we're successful. And because of that, I want to talk about the values I'm instilling in this business and what you get to be a part of and what you get to sort of sign your name on in terms of what you stand for in the world. Now it's not just about signing on to support Suna. It's about signing on to support a different way of thinking about the kinds of relationships that investors and startups can have. And at the end of the day, when you look at my cap table, It is the highest integrity people that you will find in venture. If you're looking to put together a high integrity round, I would suggest you target my cap table as a result of this. I truly think that my designs for having this high integrity cap table has now meant that through the ups and downs of running my business, I have more honest dialogue with my investors. I have a more personal relationship with them. And I really actually trust them with the decisions that I'm making and they trust me in exchange. So many relationships go wrong because they're simply transactional. The candor clause is a forcing function for allowing these relationships to get past the transaction and could get some of the deeper, meatier issues that really are at the heart of why so many of us are doing what we do. So inspiring, so actionable. Thank you for creating the Candor Clause. Thank you for making it that all of the founders across the world can access it. Thank you for being that role model. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. So great to hear from Liz, the CEO of Suna, about the Candor Clause. But now let's hear from Peter Dunbar from the UN Principles of Responsible Investment to learn more about what it means for startups if a VC firm is a signatory of the UN PRI. So let's start with our first question. What is UNPRI and who's it for? Okay, well, look, firstly, thank you very much for having me. I guess the first thing to say, actually, even despite the fact most people call it the UNPRI, it it did actually spin out of the the UN, and I can explain a little bit more in a moment, but we're actually an independent organization, independent of the UN. But beyond that, we are the world's leading proponent of responsible investment. And we work by trying to understand or get our signatories to understand the investment implications of environmental, 
social and governance factors or ESG factors. And then to support our international network of investor signatories in incorporating those factors into their investment and ownership decisions. So then going back to the, the UN, the genesis of the PRI was back in 2005 when the then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan invited a group of the world's largest institutional investors to join a process that went on to develop the principles for responsible investment as they are today. And that, that was a group of 20 investors from institutions kind of across 12 countries. So 20 to begin with, back in 2005, we're now 5,000 signatories within the PRI. And I think the AUM of those combined signatories is somewhere north of $100 trillion. So we've grown a great deal. And signatories are a combination of investment managers like VCs, VC firms, but also their investors. So the pension funds, endowments, high net worth individuals, etc., and service providers. And in, in private equity, which includes venture capital in our way of thinking, we have now around 11 or 1200 of those investment manager signatories that invest to some extent in private equity and, and venture capital. What does it mean for the VC themselves if they are a signatory? What do they have to do to become one and stay one? The first thing I should say, and it's sometimes a bit of a, an overused term, but it, the PRI is a big tent organization. So simply being a signatory is no real indication of how advanced you are in your ESG practices or responsible investment practices or, or not. But we do have a number of minimum requirements that every signatory needs to, to achieve. The first being to undertake our reporting and assessment process. So on an annual basis, signatories must report through what's quite an extensive framework of, of questions, how they incorporate ESG and responsible investment into their investment practices and, and, and beyond. And from that, we produce public transparency reports, which people can, can take a look at on the PRI website, but also signatories get a more detailed private assessment report, which gives them a grade based on their responses. And that is also accessible by other signatories, if you have the permission of the, the signatory who is reporting. And then we have other minimum requirements. For example, you must have, signatories must have an investment policy that covers the firm's responsible investment approach covering over 50% of their AUM, which is a bit more applicable to the kind of multi-asset managers other than VCs. They must also have internal or external staff responsible for implementing responsible investment policy. That doesn't have to be dedicated staff. It could be investor relations, professionals, anyone really, ideally dedicated staff. And then senior level commitment and accountability mechanisms for responsible investment. And one of the new things we ask is a to get a, a statement along with the reporting from C-level people within the signatory organization. And then if signatories don't meet these, they, they can be delisted after a process of engaging with them and after a certain period of time elapses. There is also a serious violations policy, which enables anyone to raise concerns over the way a signatory might behave that might kind of go against the principles. And that gets dealt with by the PRI's board and could ultimately also result in delisting. And beyond the bare minimum requirements, signatories are just generally working towards implementing the six principles, which we haven't exactly mentioned, but we can sort of mention a couple of them into their business and their investment decision making. So, for example, one is incorporating ESG issues into investment analysis and decision making. 
and another is seeking appropriate disclosure on ESG from the entities in which they invest, e.g. the startups that you're looking to get off the ground. So how can startups find out if the VC they're engaging with is a signatory? And what does it mean for startups who pitch to them? In terms of finding out if they are a signatory, you could just go to the PRI's website, which is unpri.org, and we have a signatory directory there where you can just do a name search. And then if, if you find out that they are a signatory, then you know that they have made certain commitments around ESG and responsible investment, as we've just been discussing. It's also likely that many of their LPs, the VCs investors, have also made those same commitments. So for example, we have Harvard Management Company or some of the, the funder funds like Top Tier Capital as signatories as well. So the VCs should be looking to understand the ESG risks and opportunities of your business, either the current ones or in the case where you're very early stage, perhaps the, the, the future risks that might come to be once hopefully your, your company's scaled to a, to a great size. And then given the requirements of being a signatory and the principles themselves, some of which we've discussed, VC signatories should really be looking to engage with startups and founders on ESG topics and be actively considering them in their investment decision-making processes and also during their holding periods. So you should really be thinking about how to communicate within your pitch the ways in which you're going to identify and try to manage any of those ESG risks and opportunities that you might identify. And that might be inherent in the business model of the business that you're looking to, to get started. And then engagement on ESG shouldn't really just stop at the point of investment. One of the principles I haven't mentioned so far is that signatories will be active owners and incorporate ESG issues into their ownership practices. So one thing the VCs might consider doing is helping founders and startups improve their own ESG practices as they grow. And that might mean simple things like introducing them to topical experts in, let's say, DEI, or with later stage investments, perhaps giving them practical support in how to go about measuring GHG emissions if it's material for their business. And I think the, the buyout industry has recognized that having strong ESG programs is both value creative in terms of their investment returns, but it's also starting to be table stakes in terms of attracting key LPs in, into their funds. But VC is possibly a little way behind on this front still, but I do think that the, the VCs that, that go on to develop these skill sets and, and tools and are able to support you as founders with those issues can actually differentiate themselves from the crowd and perhaps it can even help them win deals if founders value VCs for more than just the capital that they bring to the table. What trends do you see in the responsible investment space through your role at PRI that companies or startups should know about? Good question. I, I think just generally, one trend that we've seen over the last couple of years and I think will continue is just the huge increase in, in focus on responsible investment in the private markets industry, whether that's buyouts, VC, infrastructure, whatever. I, I think that kind of focus is only going to go one way despite you know some of the noise around it in the US, for example. In terms of topics and themes, I think 
in the later sort of stage investments in the buyout world, particularly net zero is a massive trend at the moment. Now, how applicable that is to VC, I think is yet to be seen. But I do think it's important for startups as they grow to prepare themselves for future stages of growth where other investors, later stage investors, public market investors even might have those kind of demands around companies setting net zero targets or having kind of decarbonization targets, for example. So net net zero is a massive thing at the moment. There are also related topics like biodiversity that, that are really kind of starting to emerge as, as issues, again, predominantly in the bio world. But I do see most of these things kind of gradually percolating down in, into VC in one way or another. There's a lot of discussion there around nature-based solutions, you know, how you can use nature-based solutions to offset some of your emissions from portfolio companies but it's a difficult area to get right for various reasons but one related aspect here i think that's pertinent to vc because quite a few of the vc firms uh do do it and and startups indeed is carbon offsetting it's a great idea in principle but the voluntary market for offsets is quite plagued with issues as basic as the carbon being offset is not actually always locked away for long periods, for example. So there's a great variety of, of quality in terms of the projects that are being used to actually offset emissions. So things need to to improve there. And then for us, the PRI has two sort of tier one thematic issues. One is climate change and the other is human rights. So later in the year or, or next year, we're going to be doing some work on human rights in tech investments, which obviously has a big crossover with VC and also later stage growth investments. But there was a recent report by Amnesty International, which highlighted the the lack of human rights due diligence among many of the big VC firms. So there's lots of work to do around just recognizing that tech investments do have potential human rights risks. So lots of work to do there. And then just generally on, on reporting, we've been talking about ESG reporting in Sort of private equity for a decade plus now, and we're gradually making a little bit of progress. So there's an initiative out there called the ESG Data Convergence Project, which is quite a long name, but essentially CalPERS, public uh, pension scheme, and, and Carlisle, a big private equity firm, came together with a bunch of other private equity investors to decide on a number of ESG KPIs that everybody should be tracking. So there's, there's a small set of reporting KPIs there that have been agreed upon. And just reporting more generally, you know, trying to identify what is material to report for VC and try to get some standardization there will, will be important. It's so useful to have this perspective of what investors are thinking about that are signatories because that trickles down to our startups and our founders. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First.